Elad Ben Israel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, nice to be here. How are you? Ah, not too bad. So we wanted to run through your uh, run through your life story and how you ended up uh, doing what you do now. So you said that you started out as a as a '90s PC kid. What does that mean to you? Embarrassing to say, almost 18, eight, eight, 1980s PC kid. Uh, wow. I think I started programming around 1990. So it's, uh, was that basic or what was the language then? It was, I think it was Pascal and basic back then. And then a friend told me, you've got to learn C. C is, C is the language, uh, that will teach you what computers are. Um, and so I actually recall like buying like a, a C book like a classic C book when I was like 13 or 14 or something like that. And never looked back, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I can, uh, I can absolutely identify with that. C was also my, well, it was my second language, my first language. I'm also a bit embarrassed to say it's PHP. Um, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of having, well, not proud, but I'm really happy that I have learned C because it makes you really understand the concepts of programming under the hood. Well, to a certain level, I still admittedly don't know anything about how assembly works, for example, but you know, I know how to implement a linked list, which means I, I know the trade-offs between, uh, between different uh, data yeah, structures. I, I, I remember, I remember like having like understanding pointers yeah. was a huge, you know, a huge kind of, coin drop for me, right? Like, because I think like that's where C is basically, you know, you're so close to how memory works and, and being able to understand, uh, what a pointer is. And it just like, kind of like unveils the mysteries of, of what is a computer, right? Like, and so there was something that was really magical about it. Yeah. I remember when I, when I first learned about pointers, I wrote a C program compiled it and all it would do is declare a variable and print the address in memory. And then I realized if I started it five times, four times out of five, it was the same address because when I closed it, it was freed up again. So then I wrote a second C program, hard coded that address in and then incremented it by one and then uh, did a thing in the other one where if I pressed enter, it would print the value again. And this was before like, uh, memory space yeah, yeah, isolation so and randomization and it actually worked yes. it's like one process could just patch in, into the memory of another one i'm like this is crazy <laughs> yeah no, yeah yeah so, so after, yeah go on after that it says you, these days sorry go ahead uh, no it's all right um tell your story however you want to tell it um it says here you went to the israeli army afterwards is that related as in in a sort of technical capacity as well well, yeah, I mean, Israel, the Israeli army surprisingly has a pretty large amount of software engineers in it. It's mandatory service. So obviously, yeah. uh, it, the cheapest labor ever. Uh, and, and it's actually, it's actually amazing. I, I remember, um, when, when you joined the army, uh, you, you, you kind of go through, you, you're going to go through like some, some screening process for different types of units. And I had some programming background and for me, it was like, you know, a dream come true to go and, and, you know, have 
spend, you know, all these years and you have to spend at least three years in the Israeli army. Eventually I spent six years in the Israeli army, uh, but I was doing programming. So for me, it was just like Disneyland in a, in a way, you know, hard to, you know, it's, it, it's always, it's always kind of conflicting, you know, because an army is generally, um, but it is a defense army and I spent most of that, most of that time building defense systems that are, you know, using software and, um, it was, it was great. You know, it was like a, an, an 18 year old kid, uh, getting to work on really interesting technology and working in a team and understanding what it means to work as a, in a team, uh, and build software together with other people. It was actually this unit that had both hardware and software engineers working together and building things. And so for me, it was just me an amazing school. Obama. So, um, so what was the, the yeah. culture like in the sense of the culture of the programming teams? That's always one of the things that interests me as a DevOps the most. Was there a lot of mentoring? Were there good practices like code reviews, peer reviews, or was it as hierarchical as you imagine the army being? So you, I started with like a six months uh, training course, programming training course, uh, which was like, military training boot camp style you know 10 hours 12 hours a day with like uniforms and and you know cleaning of the toilet type stuff uh but all throughout that day uh you're 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 basically learning how to program and they and this course specifically is designed for people who don't have background in program so it's actually Starting from like first principles, the first few months, you're just drawing algorithms uh, on paper, you know, like you understand how to to create like flow charts. And, and so it's really, it's, it's actually very well designed to take in hundreds and hundreds of kids that have like potential to be, be good programmers and turn them into like first grade practitioners. So it's in a sense, it's a very you know, pragmatic practitioner centric training for programming. And they really teach you all the, you know, best practices on how to build production grade software. So for me, it was like a very good foundation. And then as, as you go and, you know, if you finish your, 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 your training and you go to the, the unit, you realize the world is like a hundred times more messy. <laughs> and yeah. all the stuff that you've learned is basically. It's really nice in training, but then reality is, uh, you know, and, and again, it depends on which unit you go to, like every, every unit is very different. And so, but, I, but I think like for me, it was like a great experience because I could also, I, I also, I already came with some background and I already had like lots of opinions on how to build software. And obviously I was, I thought I was way smarter and way more experienced than I was really, I, I, I actually was. But uh, in that environment, it was like really an opportunity to to test my ideas and test my opinions and try out new technology, and um, it was really fun. And I'm still in touch with some of the. I actually have someone in in, in our company is a, a guy that I served in at yeah that unit with a friend a friend of mine is one of the best software engineers I've ever worked with. So. Small world. It's not a small world, right? Like we know each other, so obviously, uh, 
<laughs> That's not a coincidence, but uh, the fact that uh, I still feel he is one of the best programmers I've worked with is uh, probably a good indication. Yeah, so strong foundations, I think, go a, go a long, long way. So do you feel this helped you get a job after the army as well? Yeah. Um, so when I when I finished my service, I basically spent some time doing some freelance work, uh, um, kind of like, you know, doing some contracts and embedded software and Linux and low-level networking stuff, which was where what I was uh, doing in the army. And, and then I joined a startup company that had some folks from my service that were involved. And so it's definitely an amazing, an amazing, you know, uh, an, an amazing start for, for a career. And, you know, as you're in the army, you're like, okay, everything looks very dramatic and very substantial. And then as my career progressed, I realized this was great. There was a slow piece and uh, but it was, it was, a, it's a great start. Definitely. So let's talk a bit about your career progression because you've worked for some major companies, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, you've, you've worked on AWS. Um, tell us a little about how, how you f well fell into that or worked your way into that. So basically after, you know, one of the things that one of my realizations, as I just mentioned, was that the you know my my army service wasn't a great school for like building um i would say large scale high, high level software right like it was very kind of low level very bottom up type engineering in the sense and i felt i needed like to learn from the best in the sense like i i wanted the the you know the best ex the, the best school for like building real world complex software Mm -hmm. And Microsoft had just started their uh, Tel Aviv uh, sites at that time. Um, and so I interviewed and uh, and started working there and spent about five years working at Microsoft, which was really, really fun and really interesting. And I feel like in that sense was the best, you know, step for me because it gave me another layer of education and training and experience on like building software in like large teams and way more pure than kind of like this low level embedded stuff that I've done in the army. Um, and, and at that time, Microsoft was still not even in the cloud and there was Azure was just kind of starting and, but distributed systems, uh, were, uh, were becoming very popular and very, you know, Google has been publishing a lot of uh, research on that. And, and so we actually, uh, I, I, I was lucky to be in a team that built today, we would call it a private cloud platform in a way, just basically kind of like building a little cloud from the ground up. And for me as a developer, it's always like when you are able to kind of go through building something from the ground up, from the lower layers to the higher layers, your understanding of it is incredible. And so yeah. kind of reading research about distributed storage and reading research about, you know, horizon till scaling and, and implementing those things as in a big team. And so to me, it was, it was great. It was just the perfect, the perfect opportunity to learn what the cloud is from, from very, from first principles in a sense. 
Yeah. So you mentioned that in the army, you did loads of low level networking stuff. And I assume it's really important that people who work in actually implementing a cloud understand these low level considerations, because as a cloud user, we don't need to understand them anymore because they're abstracted away from us. We just say stuff like, I want enhanced networking and now, now my networking is faster, but how does that work? Nowadays, most, well, most cloud engineers don't know because they don't, don't have to know. But um, of course, there has to be someone in the stack who does understand, <laughs> who does understand yeah, all of these things. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting observation because, you know, what we're doing today is uh, you know, I'm building a programming language for the cloud called Wing, and we'll talk about it in a second. Absolutely. But one of the kind of one of the one of one of the ways we were, we're talking about it a lot is is we're saying cloud engineers don't really need to care about the low level details of the cloud, but they have to, right? Like the reality of the cloud today is that the the mechanics are are leaking into the developer experience, and that's one of the things that we're trying to solve. But in a sense, if I'm looking back on my career and kind of like my experience as a developer, I feel like I've always really liked understanding how the lower layers work. And so there's this really interesting di kind of dichotomy between understanding the lower layers and building on top of high level abstractions. And I feel like Great, I think good engineers. My experience, you know, my in my career working with great engineers has always been that they understood that the fact that they're using high level abstractions doesn't mean that they don't need to understand the lower layers and have empathy to the lower layer. Um, yeah, absolutely. Still doesn't mean that they need to tweak the lower layers every time they're building higher level applications. I think like that's that's so definitely an interesting observation. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's the only way that we can build applications as complex as we do nowadays. If you think about object-oriented programming, there are lots of, lots of things that are completely abstracted. And it's certainly not as efficient as if you build the same application flawlessly uh, in assembly or in plain C, for example but just the human effort involved and, and, and the possibility for uh, mistakes uh, rises exponentially the lower you code, I would argue. Of course, yeah, of course. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the essence, it's the, it's the epiphany of, of expo exponential creativity and innovation, right? Like I always like to say, when you move your mouse, there's like 30 different layers of software that are, that are involved in, in every touch of your, of your mouse and you don't care about that right? like that's a completely abstract effect. you don't even know that this mouse is like a little point like a little bitmap that's drawn on your screen and it has these little I, and i used to draw these things i remember when i was a oh, kid wow. it was like my hot leak right like <laughs> um but that's the beauty of, of of abstraction right like and that's why i love software in a sense uh, there's a there's a lost bit of Computer art. No one uses custom curses anymore. I think nowadays. <laughs> it is a lot. <laughs> I used to work. One of my first student jobs. I used to work with someone who used custom Windows cursors. So everyone else's computer was just a standard uh, white arrow on Windows, and his was a big bumblebee. And it <laughs> is just so weird. But um, yeah, I, I feel like that that could do with a revival having custom cursors that 
don't look too awful and don't uh, don't take away too much <laughs> performance or attention, but be a nice, nice yeah. personalized touch. So after Microsoft, uh, you worked for Amazon and eventually AWS. Do you want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I, after Microsoft, I uh, spent a, a couple of years traveling, actually, um, and uh, did some freelance work. Actually, my, 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 my boyfriend at the time was my husband today, convinced me taught not to take a laptop with me uh, to our, uh, when we, when we, when we moved to China. And for me, it was like, I realized it was the first time since I was about 10 that I didn't have a keyboard next to me, right? Like in the Senate in close proximity to oh, wow. my, my hands. Was that yeah, uh, was because that of security no, considerations? Really was that not taking no, 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 a, a not laptop? At all. No, it was like, just so you could switch off. Yeah, exactly. So I could actually tra travel and disconnect. And spend and, quality and, time together. And yeah, okay, I understand. Spend absolutely. quality time together. And yeah. it was, it was, it was great. It was actually a really good call not to, not to carry a laptop with me as we travel. Uh, but after about seven or eight months, uh, we flew to San Francisco uh, and spent about five months in San Francisco went to Burning Man, and then I bought a laptop <laughs> because I was like, this is enough. Um, so it, I think since I was 10, I think I spent about a year without, maybe less than a year without a laptop, without a keyboard. Um, and so, yeah, as we were traveling, I was kind of, you know, doing a bunch of kind of, today you'd call it uh, uh, no, um, nomadic hacker or something like that. Um, and I loved it. It was really great. Had some opportunities to partner with some startups and help them, you know, when first, uh, when the, their initial stacks and, and some iOS programming, which was really fun and some web development and backend stuff. And always been very, really like to kind of cross the layers and, and learn new, new technologies and new tools and, um, at some point, uh, this guy that I worked with at Amazon reached out. We were we were in Seattle visiting some friends, and he reached out. And he was like, "Hey, you know, I moved to Amazon, uh, and I'm starting this new project. Maybe I don't know. Come, come here. Come, come listen." And and I was we were in Seattle, and so we met for coffee. And he was like. So it's still, you know, undisclosed. We're not, you know, we haven't talked about it yet, but we're, uh, we're building this drone delivery system. And at that time, drones were, you would, you would think that they came from like the aliens or something like that. I remember like watching these drones and like bewildered by this magical thing, you know, still in mint air and, and, and having that like con combined with the Amazon you know, vision of like drone delivery. And that was, you know, at the beginning of the drone hype. So everybody was, was sure that by in within two years, we won't be able to see the sky because everything's going to be filled with yeah. drones. And so 10 or even more 10 years in, I think they just did their first delivery production delivery, like a month ago or something. Uh, but, but back then it was really inspiring. It's still very inspiring. I still think it's a, it's a worthwhile effort and 
And so he said, you'll come to Seattle. We'll pay for all the expenses, you know, after you finish your travels and spend a bunch of months, see, see if you like it. And if you like it, you can stay. And I remember, uh, and it was like, I didn't have anything, you know, it was kind of freelancing and, and we were thinking of going to Burning Man again. And so it was like nicely aligned with our plans. And spending some time in Seattle in the summer is, is, is beautiful. <laughs> it's not fair. It's not a fair, uh, <laughs> um, and I remember, um, you know, starting my first day, they kind of take me to this, uh, hangar that they, the, uh, you know, lease downtown Seattle. And, uh, I remember going into that hangar and kind of like feeling like Alice in Wonderland. Uh, you know, like they just like poured every type of maker, hacker maker equipment into like this huge room because they didn't even know what they want to build, what kind of things they need, what kind of materials. And so for me, it was like, you know, it was perfect. You know, I'm, I'm a maker at heart. I mostly do software making, but, but I feel like. I'm a maker at heart and I love to build things and, you know, kind of going into that type of environment with like amazing people from like across the industry that, uh, they brought in to try and build this thing was obviously a very interesting opportunity. And after a couple of months hacking on drones and prototyping and fooling around, which was really fun. Um, I also realized Amazon was a really interesting company. I mean, you, I've kind of learned to st started to learn about the culture and the philosophy and it was very refreshing. It was very different than the Microsoft philosophy. Uh, I, it felt like I might feel comfortable in this environment where it's kind of embracing chaos and embracing independence, which is something that for me, it was a little harder at, at Microsoft, felt very regimented, very, very structured, very hierarchical, where Amazon was kind of like celebrating innovation and ce celebrating uh, uh, people. Really fast uh, and, and such. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it was, and obviously this project was really inspiring. So join, join Amazon. Found us again in corporate America. I don't know exactly. Wasn't in the stars initially, but uh, felt like an, an interesting opportunity. And and it kind of, in a sense, kind of um, full circle a little bit with my, my army service because it was again going back to like low-level, uh, real-time uh, software, multidisciplined environment where you have like people doing hardware and software together. Um so in a sense, it was like, I felt I'm, 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 you know, using some of the skills and, and, uh, uh, experience I, I had, I had in my army service. Um, and so I spent a bunch of years there. So you've really worked on, uh, on the drone, uh, the drone program yeah. at Amazon, but you've also worked on another project there. Yeah. And, um, after a couple of years, I realized it's probably going to take 10 more years before this is going into production. <laughs> and it, it gone to the point, you know, I basically gone to the point where I felt uh, that uh, I really wanted to do stuff that's in production that has real users. And Amazon is the perfect company for that because 
there's a company that does a lot in production and there's a lots of scaling and and I really was interested in the cloud and really wanted to make sure that I have really good understanding of of how the cloud is evolving it kind of felt like it's it's a great opportunity but I'm actually not doing anything that's related to the cloud when I was uh, working for Prime Air and so after a couple of years I I found this new project uh with the Amazon search the the folks that are responsible for the search experience at Amazon amazon.com so moved over to uh work with these guys uh, which was like almost the 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 mirror image from an engineering perspective it was like you know this very very high large scale system incredible responsibility to like serve all of the traffic that Amazon had basically you know the front door to amazon.com everybody uses search of course um system was designed 15 years back and so like lots of legacy architecture which you had to appreciate right because it's it's working and so to me it was like in terms of like problem solving and engineering thinking was was really amazing and interesting and the folks there were uh very uh very experienced engineers have been you know kind of shepherding this system for the for, for a long time and and so that was that was my next gig there um, so again an interesting trade-off between low level in in order to make sure that stuff is performant and fast but also making sure that it can scale uh, unbelievably largely yeah exactly exactly so it's like cloud distributed systems uh real world production and real world problems right and challenges elements of big data i imagine yeah yeah working a lot with um with working with the catalog with the amazon catalog which is over a billion items uh and 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 having to be able and being able to like find things within that catalog and, and realize what's the right uh, architecture there and i was involved with a project that tried to re to restructure the the search index uh and optimize some of the hardware costs which were going going in the wrong direction <laughs> in a way uh and 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 the opportunity there was interesting because we were building this microservice that supported the search class cluster and that microservice was kind of like this big data streaming analytics system where which which set on the website firehose event firehose so it basically saw all of the events that happened or you know that the people clicked on items on, and ordered things and and then use this information to identify which products in the catalog are more likely to be needed in search results. So it's kind of like this uh tiering uh this tiering uh, system. And 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 the interesting thing there was that we built it, you know, there were a lot of interesting things there, but one of the interesting things there was that we built it uh using we kind of leaned heavily on AWS obviously. Uh, so that existed at, at that point. What was the, um, I suppose, what was the scale of AWS at that point? Which were the newest services? What was the kind of stuff that AWS 
could do at that point and, and what was the stuff that it couldn't do yet. I think that's because AWS is evolving like crazy. Obviously, I always tell my friends that nowadays you can rent a satellite ground station by the second on AWS, just, just, just to make non-technical people understand how unbelievable the cloud is nowadays. So at that point in time, where would you position AWS? I think it was kind of like the rise of serverless in a sense. Back then, Amazon.com, the retail business, was still mostly uh, hosted on EC2 machine. Uh, and, and in a sense, it's kind of like the, 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 the migration from before AWS, because Amazon.com existed before AWS. And so when AWS started and EC2 started, uh, what happened is that Amazon.com kind of lifted and shifted their data centers into uh, EC2, but they didn't change a lot about the higher uh, layers, the, the, the top layers of the stack. So the applications were still built in the same way. They were just running on EC2 now. And so they could leverage some of the, they, they could enjoy some of the economic, you know, uh, aspects of using EC2. And in a sense, it's, that's the origin story of AWS in a way. Uh, but the, but most of those services still didn't, weren't able to lever, weren't, weren't, met, weren't leveraging most of the AWS portfolio. And at that time, Amazon was, and still, uh, but at that time, Amazon was going through this really, really interesting process of enabling Amazon.com teams to leverage AWS services to build the internal services, the, the services that, that were, you know, that were part of Amazon.com. And, and by enabling those things, when, when people like me came and wanted to build this new microservice, suddenly we could build them with Lambda and with DynamoDB and with Kinesis and with technology that wasn't very popular, wasn't very widely used internally at that time. And which is actually one of the beautiful things about how Amazon operates and you know how this innovation flywheel works by enabling these internal teams to use these external services they're able to understand how these things actually work in real, you know, they're becoming their own design partners in a way. And, and so that was like, I would say the rise of serverless because that's when Amazon had started to kind of seriously consider using serverless for their production systems. And, and in a way that was also the reason, so we used serverless for this, for this uh, project because it was like, Hey, I don't want to deal with servers. I don't want to deal with, uh, ex you know, scaling the system and monitoring CPU usage and stuff like that. I just wanted to run load and the load was huge. You know, the, from day one, we needed to support incredible capacity, which was very interesting. It's usually not like that, right? Like usually start slow and, you know, build up. In this case, from day one, we, we needed to be able to like process the entire fire hose of Amazon.com events in the US, right? Like that was like day one. And so it was really fun to kind of have this really clear uh, constraints that were not some, some, you know, hypothetical, yeah, maybe in two years we'll have a lot of traffic. No, day one. And so that made it really clear where, you know, the total cost of, you know, managing fleets of servers versus using something like Lambda, it was so clear to us because it was like, yeah, you know, being able to like elastically scale 
uh, was almost a requirement. And, and so what happened there is, is, you know, we use CloudFormation to provision all these uh, services, all these resources. And it was the first time I've built something like that, uh, which was, you know, real world, large scale. And I, re I found myself copying and pasting YAML for like a month. Yeah. And to me, that was like something, something felt wrong, right? Because as a developer, I'm already used to, you know, living in, in heaven, right? Like I have IDEs, I have classes, I have interfaces, I have libraries, I have unit tests, I have, you know, we have a whole discipline that we've developed in the last 30 years on how to manage large complex systems, right? Like we decompose them into smaller pieces and create APIs and, and all that stuff. And, and, and Sully Engine had that. And the reality was that as you leverage more and more of the cloud, in, in, the, in this example was like very extreme, but as you leverage more and more of the cloud, you basically move uh, the logic of your application from your code to infrastructure, right? So in, in a sense, your application is not just the code that runs inside your Lambda function or inside a Docker image. Your application is both your infrastructure and the, the way your infrastructure is set up and the code that runs within those compute systems, which is not even the primary thing in a sense, right? Like the, the, that code reacts to events that the infrastructure emits. Um, and so these event-driven, serverless, cloud-heavy, I call them because cloud-native, I can't call them, but cloud-heavy uh, uh Why not uh, cloud-native? What's that? Why not, not cloud-native? Cloud when you say cloud day, people think you're uh, using Kubernetes, right? Like it's kind of like, oh, oh yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. All right. I get you. So I'm calling them cloud heavy. Uh, so cloud heavy, these cloud heavy applications are, are not just infrastructure They're and they're not just code. They're also infrastructure and being able to actually use programming languages to manage that complexity and to model those, those systems becomes a very, very useful thing. And so that's when basically uh, I created this project that became the AWS CDK, uh, which was the, the last thing I worked on at AWS in the last So that was years. your initiative? Yeah. Yes, it was based cool. on that. Uh, it was based on me like being frustrated with the YAML, basically. <laughs> and the Amazon CDK... Uh, how, how would you summarize that in, in just a sentence? What is the CDK? How is it different from, I suppose, the SDK? Um, so the C, if you, the, basically the CDK is the SDK for infrastructure in a sense, you see it, it, it's a, a software development framework. So it's a basically a library, um, Kind of like it has a programming, it has a composable programming model, kind of like React's programming model, where you could create these constructs and compose them together into complex, more complex constructs. So you have this composability system. And when you run a CDK application, it synthesizes a CloudFormation template for you. So the output of a CDK program is a declarative desired state configuration of your infrastructure. Now, that's actually the least 
interesting thing about the CDK itself, because once you have these composable composability systems, then suddenly you can create higher level APIs and abstractions, and, and you can create a whole universe of developer experience designed to give developers the ability to to create complex infrastructure, complex systems and model complex infrastructure systems and reuse them and share them through libraries and test them and all that good stuff that you can do with traditional programming languages, but now for your infrastructure. And and so that's that's the CDK. I see. So whereas the SDK gives you classes within with a reasonable level of abstraction, so you can, for example, instantiate a client and, and provision a VPC, um, the CDK doesn't send off the API calls, but the end result is uh, the, the YAML or JSON for CloudFormation. Um, and also the, the classes are a bit more, even more higher class and allow for more, I suppose, composition with other services and resources as well. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, the SDK is basically a way to interact with the backend systems. There, in the SDK, the Android SDK is generated also the service definitions of the various backend systems. So if you have S3, and S3 has create bucket, update bucket, delete bucket, list buck, list, you know, list uh, okay. objects, put item, blah, blah, blah. And there's a bunch of APIs that the S3 service exposes. And and the SDK basically allows you to call these APIs. That's that's the the goal of the SDK. Yeah. And the CDK is designed to allow you to model the system. So you basically say, I want the system to have a bucket. I want the system to have a queue. I want the system to have a function, lambda function. I want the function to be triggered when the queue has a message in it, or you know when the when the file is uploaded to the bucket. And when you run this thing, it produces infrastructure as code definition. And the infrastructure as code definition is going into a provisioning engine like CloudFormation or Terraform or Kubernetes and gets provisioned, right? Like that's basically the, the part where you set up the system. And once you've set up the system, it ex it's executed and, uh, uh, you know, it operates. So yeah, that was a really fun project to work on. Uh, I loved every minute of it. It was uh, kind of like this open, it became a very big open source project and a, a, an incredible community kind of formed around it of uh, developers who wanted to use programming languages to build cloud applications. It became very popular internally because obviously the complexity was for of, of systems that are built inside Amazon and AWS grant you know needed needed those tools yeah um, absolutely like you said amazon also, being its own are... best client excuse, excuse me um sorry there's a bit of lag uh yeah like you said amazon being its own biggest client and i suppose the the advantage which is a luxury that we often don't have otherwise is that you can rely on your on your client actually giving you clear requirements for once so you, you know yeah. that a solution being engineered at Amazon certainly fits uh, one big use case, which is that of Amazon, and then is likely to also fit other use cases 
which is kind of how I see the ethos of, of AWS. Like it works for us. Uh, it could be useful to yeah. you. And I would even, I would even, I would even emphasize it a little, a little more because Amazon doesn't have a culture of requiring internal teams to use certain tool. Like it actually has a culture of like, you make your own choices about the tools that you're using to build your product. And, and that actually creates a situation where even if you're building something as AWS or as Amazon, you actually have to do a really good job in order for internal teams to adopt it. So it's not just, and I think like that creates this really natural uh, alignment of, of incentives, right? Like you're not, you're not gonna, you're gonna succeed only if there's a fit, right? Like if it actually fits the use cases, if it actually is loved by developers and Whenever Amazon had, in the past, whenever Amazon had tried to like mandate teams to, to use certain tools, uh, at least my experience internally was that they were not very good tool, right? Like is they didn't create this, right, the right incentive for product teams to like build the right tool. Um, so I think that's even more genuine in a sense. Yeah, no, I see, I see what you mean in the sense of how embarrassing would it be for let's say AWS's S3 team, if Amazon.com started using uh, Microsoft's object store solution. <laughs> so extra yeah, incentive yeah. to make sure that it is fit for purpose. So how does the communication internally work? Is there a lot, are there lots of events that facilitate communication between, for example, Amazon.com and, and their requirements and uh, initiatives then by AWS to see if there could be something innovative to fulfill those requirements, how does that work from a from a culture point of view? So it actually so there's both there is a there is a top down kind of process that goes every year between Amazon and AWS and you know Amazon the dot com guys are you know listing their requirements and things that they need, uh, but for for most for, in most cases. There's nothing explicit about that, or there's nothing different between internal Amazon teams and any other company that uses AWS or, or any startup company or any big company that uses AWS. And, and, and again, it goes back to this, this notion of like, you're just doing, you need to do your job, you know, if you're building a, and then that's what I, that's, that's basically what, what, what happened with the CDK. I was like. I'm going to move to AWS and I'm going to build this as an AWS service. And if that's a good service, internal teams are going to adopt it. And so obviously we had a Slack channel, right? In the internal Slack, so people could ask questions about the CDK internally. And it had 17,000 people. But uh, that's a big but, Slack channel. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a big Slack channel. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, and, and, and obviously, as you say, right, like you get this firsthand design partner, you know, with people who are very opinionated and they would not be shy to tell you, they would even go in, in, in the case of open source, they, they, they get, they can just like naturally, um, submit pull requests and improve your product. And, and that's an amazing yeah. and amazing. And now I know even better, even more, right? Like how amazing that is as an, as a vendor, but from a marketing and, and communications perspective nothing spe special, right? Like you have to like go above the noise level like everybody else and make sure that people know about the project. And, and, and I remember, you know, even three years into the CDK, I remember meeting solution architects, which are, you know, 
their job is to to basically get customers to know about AWS products, meeting solution architects that didn't know about the CDK. So chaos, basically, embracing yeah. the chaos. Yeah. Well, this conversation was really interesting and really organic, a little too much even, because we've come to the 45-minute mark and we haven't even started talking about uh, your your current project, uh, Wing, the, the programming language for the cloud yet. I would suggest, if you're up for it, we make this a spontaneous two-parter and we make sure that we record the second part of the episode. So after this really interesting introduction uh, and, and really good kind of jumping off point to understand why one would want a programming language for the cloud and all the parallels with the AWS CDK, uh, we will record a, a second episode. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, that'd be great. Perfect. In that case, Elad, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, man. Cool. I, I think that was really good. Um, I'm going to leave the recording going because why not? Um, so yeah, is, is that actually cool with you? We'll, we'll, yeah, <laughs> because yeah, it, it, it 45 minutes, it was all interesting. I didn't want to, I tried to push like sometimes like, okay, and then you moved on to Amazon. Uh, but then at Amazon, you worked at a different project because I had I had my eye on the timer. Carry, but it was carry on, carry on next. Yeah, next. I mean, it was, it, it, but it is really interesting. So yeah, I think I think let's Thank do you. that. Um, put put something else in my calendar. I will, and we'll just make it a two part. I'm I'm sure that Anchor won't mind. He'll be happy to have two episodes to release. Uh, by the way, as that of be great. as of today, I got my badge today. I'm a uh, I'm a um, solutions architect professional. Oh, nice. Yeah. And also, I don't know what the, well, I've never used the CDK. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, maybe you'll be a wing uh, con convert before you even use the CDK. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really eager to try it out, actually. Yeah. But for now, I want to break because yeah. I had my exam yesterday. Lot, and it... a lot, there's not a lot to try yet. It's still very early and very alpha. And uh, yeah, but it's uh, it's exciting. I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd be happy to talk. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'll um, you you have my calendar link. Just put something in my calendar, and then we'll record a second episode at some point. Perfect. Sounds great. Cool. All right, I'm gonna go and have some food because I'm supposed to be working this <laughs> afternoon. Enjoyed. Bye. See you yeah. later.